everyone and welcome to this second episode of our Education 4.0 series. So, what is Education 4.0? Referring to the ever-reliable Wikipedia, the fourth industrial revolution is characterised by a fusion of technologies that are blurring the lines between the physical, digital and biological spheres. The fourth industrial revolution is marked by emerging technology breakthroughs in a number of fields, including robotics, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, quantum computing, biotechnology, the Internet of Things, decentralised consensus like blockchain, fifth generation wireless technologies, 3D printing and fully autonomous vehicles. But what does all this mean for education in the fourth industrial age? I asked some thinkers and doers to give me their opinion on Education 4.0. Our interpretation is that we've had many problems that educational institutions like schools, colleges and universities had for centuries or decades. And also as well, there are many problems that are relatively new. And those new problems are around data explosion, around personalised learning, the need for on-demand learning. So the traditional problems are retention, completion, progression. We're used to those. Uh, but with the emergence of increasing levels of data and complexity and personalization, and students wanting access to learning uh, at any time of the day and at any time in their lives, we need new technical solutions to address those problems. So education that can be used on the move. I think we've got to move away from things like the three-year degree and doing all your education between 18 and 25. Well, I think one of the most amazing things about this sector is the vast variety of different technologies that you can use for education. The real challenge is picking the winners. But does this amount to an education revolution? The promise of technology in education is centuries old, but will Education 4.0 bring us the personalisation, the access and inclusion, the bridging of world-class research, teaching and learning and real-time, real-world problem-solving that we so crave? Will we optimise processes and push forward with our innate creativity or will we feel stressed by instant information about our academic performance and automated updates to tutors when we actually want to go off-grid and hide in the student bar? What is the painful growth phase universities and colleges will go through to realise the promise of Education 4.0? Sue Atwell is the Further Education and Skills Team Lead within Digital Futures at JISC, with the responsibility for projects including the EdTech Launchpad, Intelligent Campus and Next Generation Digital Learning. I spoke to her in conversation with James Gupta of SignUp and David Sherwood of Bibliotech and many insightful questions from our live audience at Digifest to dig deeper into this idea of Education 4.0. Welcome to this session, which I'm super excited to be moderating today. With my panellists here, we're going to be investigating the idea of what is education 4.0 and what it means for edtech organisations as they try to solve some of the problems that we may face in education, teaching and learning. So my first question to our guests here, perhaps you could introduce yourself a little bit, what you do, and then also tell our audience here what you think uh, Education 4.0 means to you and your work. So would you like to go first, Dave? Sure. Yeah, I'm Dave Sherwood. I'm the co-founder and chief exec of Bibliotech. We work with 35 universities, some here in the UK and the US, including Oxford and NYU. We essentially are a software platform 
that takes textbooks from publishers, the university pays, the students get free access. So EdTech 4.0, it's a good question. I think it means different things to different people. Um, from my perspective, it's about fundamentally changing the interaction between the professor and the student from a very traditional professor sends information to the student, student consumes information, and then there's an exam. In the modern era with phones, computers, the internet, those interactions should be live. The professor should be able to keep track of the students on the go. As an example, we enable professors to track the content usage, so the usage of the textbooks, obviously compliant with GDPR. And that's a really important piece of information that they'd never had before and that they can get that information before the exam. And so they have this really crucial information about student engagement weeks and weeks and weeks before an examination. So if any intervention is needed or any advanced materials that need to be provided, that can be done well in advance of time. So. Fantastic. We'll come back to that idea of like learner behaviours and trends in a moment, I think. Sue, what's your version of Education 4.0? Okay, I'm Sue Atwell and I'm part of the research directorate within DISC. And my version of Education 4.0 really is ref to reflect the changing times we live in and the, the changing learners we're going to have. You know, we've got a skills shortage forthcoming. We heard yesterday in Dave Kaplan's talk about the rise of technology and how that's going to remove a lot of mundane activities from the workplace and that's going to free up people that will need reskilling and those people are going to want to learn in more modular ways in flexible ways that fit their changing lifestyles so okay. education that can be used on the move I think we've got to move away from things like the three-year degree and doing all your education between 18 and 25. Very, very interesting. There was an interesting question this morning about, we, we focus a lot on younger learners, but what about reskilling yeah. some of the people that are already in the workforce? James, how about yourself, your version of Education 4.0? My name's James Gupta. I run a company called SignUp. So SignUp is an intelligent online learning platform. What it does is makes it really easy for students or people who are in work to engage with really personalised, engaging, tailored studying with just five minutes a day and on any device. Co-founder and I set it up when we were studying medicine over at Leeds University and found that the rest of our lives was becoming sort of like taken over by this sort of like 4.0 sort of concept. So we had all of these apps and like little things that could augment our lives. Then you go into university and you realise that you're still more or less expected to just point yourself down in front of a textbook for eight hours in the library. So, so we built this app that lets students just engage with five minutes, answer a couple of questions and then use space learning and other techniques to improve their, their exam scores. Over time, that, that got bigger, and now this is what we do full-time. So we work with schools and universities, as well as employers, to deliver personalised micro-training to people. Education 4.0, as, as people say, I think there's no one definition of it, and it's not referring to one technology in particular. I think it's got to be something to do with personalisation at scale. So if you look at what the technological revolution did in education, I'm just about old enough to remember when people would drag in laptops to class and you'd have like a computer day or something like that. Well, now we've got sort of mobile phones, people are sort of always on. So it means that the way you can deliver teaching is a lot more modular and the gaps between what is like an offline teaching and an online teaching is being bridged. So I think that needs to be something about it, basically. So just to kind of jump in completely at the deep end, we had the example in the keynote on, on day one in terms of the artificial intelligence being able to, you know, it doesn't need to sleep, it doesn't need to eat. It can practice the BlackBerry game 600 times in a row and optimise a solution to be successful in that game. So uh, with SignUp, we're talking about sort of understanding topics, revising, retaining information. What's the kind of deeper question about us as learners 
there's the idea of 10,000 hours to, to master a topic. How are we going to compete using tools like SignUp versus artificial intelligence and, and what they're able to do? How do you see your role in that age? I think what AI is going to do is, is going to be transformational and it's going to have big changes and stuff like that. But I think there's still a big gap of what things it will not necessarily be able to do. Well, at the very least, we don't know that it will be able to do them yet. So there's, there, are, there are creative sort of things. You say creative and people sort of think, okay, well, designing a great marketing campaign or writing a great novel or something like that. But there are little bits of creativity in, in, in a lot of what people might think of as mundane tasks. And that, I think there are obviously things that the artificial intelligence can do to, sort of, to, to assist sort of like human workers and stuff. But I think people who are doing things like the driverless car stuff at the moment are realising just how difficult it actually is and just how complicated the human brain is because something that seems like a simple task, drive mm. along this road, if there's an obstacle, stop and turn, it's actually really complicated. And you... Can I take two minutes to go on to a, a really interesting slight tangent? But I, I, it. I, I, I love guarantee I'll, I'll bring it right back home and it'll be super relevant. One of the lectures that I actually attended in medical school, because I was working on sign it told us about a guy who'd been born blind, so he'd, he'd never seen, but he was blind in a really specific way so that a technology or a medical innovation came available in his 20s that would restore or, or give him sight, right? So he went from never being able to see anything to suddenly being able to see just like a normal person would. But something really interesting happened, which is he could see fine, but he couldn't identify, say, male versus female faces, like at all, because he's not built up his mental database of things. So he... He built up little rules over time. Okay, so if I'm speaking to you and you've got long hair, you're probably, on balance, female. But obviously that doesn't always work and there's a million of different edge cases. So over time, over a couple of years, he built up this sort of recognition sort of thing. And I think it was really interesting. They've done studies on it because you got a glimpse into the process that a human child is probably doing normally but can't articulate. And that's all of the same stuff that a, an AI algorithm is going to have to do, just sort of like broken down into steps. So... The point is, I think a lot of the stuff that we talk about AI doing, it's not going to happen simply. There's a massive amount of sort of like complexity to the creative process. And I think it's always going to be a case of humans and computers working together from here on out. Yeah, we're definitely in a sort of transition period for the foreseeable, it would seem. It's not going to happen overnight. The education revolution that we're talking about. So you're highly involved in the EdTech Launchpad programme at JISC. So I just wondered from companies going through that programme, if you're seeing any trends on which types of problems in higher ed or further ed are being tackled by EdTech companies? I think the one that most relates to Education 4.0 is the increasing focus on personalisation and adaptation. So it's all about having products that can be tailored, can be personalised as supporting flexible journeys. And I think increasing the use of things like AI and virtual reality in order to learn vocational skills in a safe environment, you know, practice and allow that kind of repetition without before going into a real world and just making things much easier to do that, build up that 10,000 hours to develop that learning. The, the key trend we're seeing at the moment is people are very much focused on personalisation, adaptation and making things work for the individual. I can see we've got the, the Ada chatbot uh, creators in the audience and, and I was highly impressed with how contextualised that is around each individual learner, yeah. so that was great. Dave, do your analytics of your users or your learners show you anything about how people are going about learning, so what times of day they engage with the content and to give a sort of picture of what a diverse set of learners might look like, so their behaviours and usage? Yeah, absolutely. First, the geographical spread. So 
despite the fact our universities are mostly in the UK and the US, obviously there are a lot of international students. So just the fact that there are students accessing the product from all over the world, you can see that on a heat map. Times of the day, as we all expect, a lot of students study very late. So we see high usage late at night, early hours of the morning. And in terms of how they're using content, it seems to be a lot more about rapid searching, sort of taking content quickly and less sequentially going page by page by page, which is fascinating. And I think that's telling of what's to come in the future. That's quite interesting. So they'll dip into different modules as opposed to work through everything. And clearly using search to just find a definition or a diagram, take that, use that in their essay or what they're working on and move on. So it's really interesting. Just an interesting add-on to that. They did studies of, I think, like millennials and Gen Z, and they found that our brains are literally sort of rewired, so we're now more likely to remember how to find something than what the actual piece of information is, because we can sort of assume that it's always there and we'll be able to find it. So a question to whoever wants to jump in. A lot of the chat around EdTech and Education 4.0 is about optimising processes or learning. And then we heard yesterday from Dominique Thompson, a doctor who specialises, spent over 10, 15 years receiving in her clinic students and listening to the patterns of, you know, what problems they're dealing with. And a lot of it is around mental health. And her kind of, I suppose, message was perfectionism is, is, is not something to necessarily go after because it puts a huge amount of pressure on us. So I just wondered what the tension is and, and how you're trying to deal with that in your product development between... On the one hand, wanting to optimise everything, so for the students' benefit, and, and then also dealing with the fact that humans are a messy species and, and things aren't always as um, clean-cut as we would like them to be. It's a really good question, and I think an interesting case here is artificial intelligence being used by Netflix, and it's something we do as well to boost content to the top based on what your peers are doing and what, what you've read previously. And Netflix have run into a bunch of problems Essentially, the artificial intelligence is biased and it would show a film to different racial groups with different covers in order to get them to click on the film and watch it. So I think by doing these optimizations and specifically letting the artificial intelligence algorithms make their own optimizations and relevancy rankings, we run into a series of moral issues that are not easily solved by computers and need deeper thought. I think from my point of view, one of the reasons we do EdTech Launchpad and work with a lot of step-ups is to help them understand around iterating their product and working with members and working with customers. So get something out there that's a kind of minimum product and then work with members and work with um, the whole kind of support system to iterate that product but in a kind of a co-creation type model so that it's a continual feedback loop and development. So I think that's that's rather than strive for perfection and then go for launch, this is about launching something and then continuing to develop and iterate until you get... Well, you may never get to final, actually. You may just continually develop all the time and never get yeah, to the end. Yes, continual learning, continual yeah. development and... Continued technological changes. And it's, it's an interesting one because I, I saw... I think Google have just launched... You know, you can now search for your course. So if you're thinking about going to university, they've, they've launched a kind of a service where you can search for your university course that would be best for you. And so we're using artificial intelligence to define who we date, define which courses we should take at university and, and everything in between. And at the same time, we're saying, well, we need to develop critical thinkers and people who can ask questions, but we're outsourcing that ability. So there's, there's a fine line, isn't there? And what's, and what's it based on? So one of the 
concerns I would have about sort of like Tinder and sort of that approach being applied into to other fields is how does Google know what sort of like career that I'm going to do? Like I'm sure I could take a personality test or a strengths test or something and it would suggest software developer, medic or something like that. But it comes down to a values sort of thing, which I feel like it can't tell me. So like my partner who's, who I've been now engaged to and been going out with five years, we are nothing like each other. Yeah. We, would, we wouldn't match each other on any, any sort of algorithm, really. But I feel like it's that sort of like complementary nature and sometimes you're not looking for the thing that's the most no, obvious part. I did and, one of those years ago and told me I should be a nurse. I'm the most least suited person to be a nurse you've ever known. <laughs> I got um, TV aerial erector and journalist uh, when I was at school. Okay, any questions from the audience before uh, you know, I jump back in with some more? I know you you know, you'll be sat there and you'll be um, thinking of your own questions. So um, don't be shy. Put your hand up. We've got one just here. One of the things that's concerned me recently is the decision by the OpenAI team to re- stop GPT-2, which is the extremely terrifyingly good chatbot. Thinking through how this might affect future education and how we assess, because you don't know necessarily if a student's gone to a an AI-driven essay mill to write the thing. So how, if we're in a world where we're not assessing by writing necessarily, how, does, how do we assess going forward to avoid these kinds of things? So you need multiple small assessment points so you can build a composite picture of how that student's doing. Like, I mean, going to your, your point on perfectionism, perfection is a great thing to sort of like aim for. Outside of academia, it doesn't really exist because you've always got time pressures and opportunity costs and stuff like that. So I think part of the challenge that education's going to have to face is it creates these sort of like artificial assessments. I'm not saying that they're bad, it needs to do that. But then if you say that there's one exam here and a significant chunk of your life after it depends on it, people are going to try and cheat and technology means that it's going to be very easy for them to cheat. So I think it's going to just have to be not relying on one or two points of assessment but a combination of like you know, speaking to the students and their engagement with the course over time and improvement or something yeah. like that. I think very much Assessment reimagined is one of the things that we've been thinking about. Mm. But I think it's very much, for me, it's, it's a move away from that, you know, that, that long course and end of examination and more micro-credentialism and things mm. like that. So you're getting credit for things as you learn them because some of the skills, you know, they're going to be quite short courses. You can learn skills and competencies and evidence and embagging those as you go along so that it's about continual assessment, yeah. but not necessarily assessment as we know it now. So you couldn't really fake it without actually going through all of that process. Yeah, so by trying exactly. to fake it, you'd actually end up being quite a competent yeah. individual. So it's, it's quite an interesting <laughs> one as well. How many people here have been in the Natalie 4.0 experience? Okay, about half. How many people here have been in the Nat- Okay, so that there are parts of that. So I suppose it's envisioning, I think it was, was it 10 years ahead? And, you know, you wake up and then immediately you're told how many credits you need to make sure that your grade is really good and... Yeah, I think there are parts of that that are really inspiring. And then there are parts that I think, wow, I'd feel so overwhelmed already. I've just woken up. I need a cup of coffee. Yeah, it's just interesting to to kind of question just because we can do it, we don't have to do it kind of thing. Mm. On that note, my next question. So a lot of people here will be from higher and further ed in the audience. Getting to Education 4.0, there will be... There'll be uh, growing pains, as it were. It won't be easy. And I'm sure many people here have experienced that within their own institutions. So what's the feedback that you're getting in terms of what are the challenges in actually getting to this education revolution and, and kind of making things more personalised? And what are the kind of the pushbacks that you're receiving from some of your customers, essentially? 
I think the main thing we hear from universities, and keep in mind we work with textbooks, so it's a specific part of the university, is obviously money is, is a big one, and most university budgets are shrinking slightly, um, and time and, and the ability to implement something. And in most cases, software seems fairly easy to implement, like on-switch type thing, but in reality, there has to be some marketing done around it, so there's awareness, there has to be certain workflows adjusted and changed, maybe processes changed, um, contracts put in place. So really, I think a lot of it has to do with the opportunity cost of the time of the administrators and, and whether they have the, the bandwidth to take on new projects. I think definitely, from my perspective, there's a big appetite out there to try new things um, within the constraints of time and money. I completely agree with that. You've you basically got to sell a solution to the universities. You're not just going to go in and get people to sign up themselves and stuff. And then I think there's a risk from the university's point of view at the moment, that, especially within some departments, that in order to take on these sort of like technologies, they are potentially going to cannibalise some of their existing market. Like universities have got a... Sure, they've got challenges, but they've got a fairly good, robust sort of model going with the sort of like 10 grand fees and the way that learning is currently structured. They're facing challenges from other companies who are offering online-only courses, sort of what FutureLearn are doing, and to an extent, sort of like what we're doing is becoming like an alternative to university for some people. If universities want to grab that sort of like by the horns, they might have to offer some courses that are online only that would maybe detract from their sort of like face-to-face -face courses where they can charge a lot more money. But it might be what they need to do in order to survive in the longer term. So I think sometimes there's a bit of a conflict between their short-term and their longer-term interests. And I think one of the other things is if we're envisaging a huge change, and potentially this is a huge change, you know, one of the other challenges is maybe the government has to think and maybe, you know, funding has to change. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily know how, but I think it's the question that we should all be asking. How do we make this work? How do we fund it? Yeah, yeah. That's a really interesting point because we are seeing some of these new universities pop up like NMITE or NMITE in Wales and the London Interdisciplinary School. And you know, I know from chatting to both of them that the funding mechanisms that exist are very much based on the traditional yeah. university and the role of the regulator and all of that. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if things catch up. On, on that note, I mean, I heard Lord Jim Knight recently had an article and it was called is university a subscription service? And, um, you know, there's lots of chat about unbundling degrees and that kind of thing. What's your kind of take on that? Because obviously, from the publishers, it's, you know, let's unbundle and let's make sure mm. we can modulise the content. You know, is that one part of where universities are going? Yes, definitely. I think it's inevitable that all universities over a longer period of time will become more like a subscription service. One, to enable the lifelong learning that we've talked about before, rather than just fixed learning. But I think the universities that seem to be growing the fastest, so Grand Canyon out in the US, and we're just about to roll out a pilot there, and Coventry, a customer of ours here, are already doing that. And it doesn't mean you have to shut down the campus and go online. That's not what it means. Mm. It means that you break down your courses into nice little learning objects and put those into nice little modules or micro-credentials, as we're saying here, and offer them to the public. Mm. And Coventry's doing a really cool thing where you can do it online or you can do it on campus. And it's not fully rolled out yet, but that's the intention that you can do a combination or do entirely on campus or do it entirely online. I think it's inevitable. And, and paying a subscription to be able to access those courses 
year on year on year. It's interesting you yeah. mentioned Coventry because they were they're sort of collaborating, I believe, with uh, or having conversations with Deakin University yes. at the moment about what would a global collaboration look like, and actually, can we borrow some of your teaching expertise for this course and, and work on that basis? We just need to kind of iron out how those credentials work across different regions. But and it's a shame that FutureLearn um, aren't present because that's something that they're collaborating on as well, I believe. Any more? Oh, sorry. We have a question here. Actually, an offering of information. I work for FutureLearn. I'm ah, a senior learning okay. technologist, yeah. and um, I'm seconded to Coventry University online from FutureLearn, and they have just announced, and in fact, they've just launched the first part of an online degree with Deacon. Okay, fantastic. So it's already, it's up and running. It's up and running. Update live mm. in, in the room. <laughs> okay. You, we should have got you an extra chair here. So we've got a couple more questions at the back over there. Hiya, I'm Tori from Manchester Met. Do you think there are any problems with this kind of breaking everything down into super bite-sized pieces and kind of micro-credentials? Because it feels like we're not giving people maybe enough space for that kind of, essentially the boredom, the creativity bit. Mm -hmm. They're giving people time to think and kind of do bigger stuff rather than just spoon-feeding them. Are we becoming shallow and responsive? (laughs) It's my version of that. I think... You know, this is the personal, adaptable part of it. I think some people will prefer short and sharp pieces and other people won't. I think, you know, this is not about one size fits all mm. and that's the change we're moving to. So that there's, there's a whole range of pick and mix options for what's suited to... I mean, and also it's not just what's suited to you, but it's what's suited to you at that particular time of your life. Mm. You know, we've, as we grow, we change how, you know, we change how we work and what, what interests us. We also change how we want to learn. We've got family commitments. We may want to learn. I did a whole course where I just did learning on a Sunday because that's what worked for me at that particular time. I'd hate to do that now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a really good question. And, and, and yes, there are sort of like risks and there are things that we might not want to take for granted about the way that education has been delivered sort of all the time. And so one example, again, going back to medicine, it was a big trend when I was starting medical school was something called problem-based learning. So it was an alternative approach to sort of like lectures where you do your one or two years preclinical and then go into the hospital. It was instead, why don't we give students a problem to solve over two months? So you've got a patient with these symptoms, working groups and learn about this and that. And it's a really nice sort of like modern idea of how you can do learning. The problem is that students sort of like one, they lacked the base sort of like knowledge because they hadn't gone to lectures about the basic biochemistry, so they were really struggling to do this stuff. And two, they ended up with really sort of like spongy knowledge because they have a great knowledge on tuberculosis if that was their case study, but they didn't have enough of like the fundamental stuff. So I think certainly what I would suggest is not to sort of like go straight to this sort of utopian vision of having education and microcourses and everyone can just choose their own little bits. It needs to be like a blended mix. There's got to be some standard learning principles and the value that people get out of them. But if we can offer people a little bit of flexibility on this side, the ability to choose, I think that's probably the best of both worlds, but it's a really good point. I'll draw the attention to the analogy of, of the novel, and I think for a number of years people have assumed people would read less of, of the novels and, and purchase less of them, and in fact that's not the case. Actually, people are purchasing more, and even the print novel sales are going up, so I think that's really fascinating. But clearly consumer behaviour is moving towards clickbait. If you look at the BBC app, their um, news thread is absolutely terrible. And I think that's a good example of how good journalists and good content can be pushed into meaningless bite-sized pieces that don't communicate any knowledge. I like that point as well, because I I feel like whatever the trend becomes, we are quite good at rallying against it. So like with digital and then vinyl going up. And Mm. 
I heard recently that we're, we're having a big influx of students choosing liberal arts subjects in the UK. And I don't know, I can't verify that, but if that's the case, everything's about STEM, but that's happening. And I think, I don't know, it's, our, it's in our nature not to go along the rails yeah. too much, which I think is a good and thing. And I think you realise what you missed about the old thing. So I think vinyl wasn't a big thing when CDs were there because you could still see an album cover and stuff like that. But as soon as it became digital only, streaming, subscription, I think the point of vinyl was people wanted to see their music like a little bit. No one would have predicted that. It's like really, but I think there's probably a similar thing in education. Like if we go too far towards like an all digital sort of thing, some it will be a good lesson as to why we needed it like it was in the first place. Well, on, on that one as well, I interviewed Connect to Teach yesterday so what they do is they connect students with industry experts and I think we're going to see a lot more of this kind of mentor-based education as especially as universities sort of transition towards perhaps more the uh, kind of interdisciplinary and, and getting students into the, to the workplace yeah. there'll be people that help them make that transition as well. So, so we hired our first developer who's not one of us uh, over like six months ago and we, we looked at computer science grads who'd done three or four years at university and he said we went with someone who'd gone through a three-month boot camp. It cost us 2000 It cost her 4000 to put herself through. And she came out knowing more and being able to plug into the organisation quicker. Mm-hmm. So that's what, um, that's what universities are going to have to compete with. On, on that point, two universities, Bath being one, I think Surrey is the other, essentially make placements compulsory. And their um, employment rates and the average salary coming out of universities much higher. And I'm sure you find that hiring software engineers and salespeople is impossible to do at the graduate level. They need some experience. And simple placement programs like yeah. that can be tacked onto a liberal arts degree. And you have a liberal arts person as that's, a software engineer. That's why Connect to Teach, have, they were one of our winners of our startup competition yesterday because getting that industry expertise in is just vital. We, we would look to hire like one or two years out. Maybe someone graduates, goes, works at a big company where they can absorb the cost a little bit and put on the training programs. Then they get bored of working in a large company, but they've just had that little bit of polish. So I think you're right, like placement programs, so you can make, make some of the academic side with just the how you actually do it on the ground stuff. It's mm-hmm. really good. That's obviously how medicine and other fields work as well. Wouldn't it? Oh, we got one uh, comment here, I believe, or question. Okay, I declare the interest that I work in a medical school, so I'm a senior okay. academic technologist in med school. So I find it interesting you're not the first person I've met this week who's been a startup company with a medical education background. Sure. Because medical education is across all subjects yeah. because of the nature of it. There are micro-credentials across clinical skills. So the way that education is done in medicine is encompassing all aspects yeah, of I education agree. from all levels of degree. So it's always interesting to come to events like this because we're already challenged in that at all levels of medicine. Yeah, I work in a four-year accelerated programme, so uh, we have case-based learning, so mm-hmm. problem-solving, but across cases, but with lectures. So mm-hmm. there's that balance that of getting of the that... Two, sure. you, you want a whole variety of options for students to pick their learning from and be able to then create their own understanding of what we're giving them. Mm-hmm. And throwing digital into that is becoming increasingly complex because it's mm-hmm. disrupting staff, students... Sure. And, of course, we're working across employers already because our students go in and work in yeah. clinical placements from very early on. So we're already connected with, directly with employers. There's no such thing as accelerating beyond four years. It's already a very accelerated medical degree. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's going to cut that down any further. Yeah, no, I, agree. I completely agree. I think medicine as an overall course, especially the way it's been done since the 2008 GMC and all of that, is really vary like we spent in Leeds about a third of our time doing like the biochemistry and the stuff that people would expect medics to be doing and the rest of it's communication and, and leadership we're on the wards 
from week one, but full-time from, from year three. And you're right, the, the four years, I don't think you could, it, could cut it down any further because even if you could cram all that information in, there's a certain amount of like just growing up and processing and stuff that you need to see. But yeah, I think the medical model as it's done now would be an interesting model for other areas. So you take the biochemistry out of it and put something else in its place and you've got this nice, well-rounded degree. I have a question this time, which is about degree apprenticeships and the role of Education 4.0. I'd be interested to hear what the panel have to say about that. Degree apprenticeships. I think it's um, potentially one of the first areas where things like uh, new technology and new, new kind of models are going to come into play. With degree apprenticeships, I think increasingly we're going to be moving away from that cohort of having young people studying something for a, in that kind of 18 to 25, which is where still the majority of, mm -hmm. of undergraduates are, and into that more mixed cohort where you're going to have people that have family responsibilities yeah. and, and are probably working somewhere where they have may have quite a long commute. So being able to study, being able to have that assessment information that they can reflect and review when they're on the train home yeah. being able to study you know after they put the children to bed so that they they still you know maintain at least some of that work-life balance and some of that family life yeah. I think it, you know it's going to be one of the drivers that start to force that change to happen as we start to deliver the service that we need to do with the change of cohorts it's interesting I just wrapped up about 40 interviews with university CIOs and equivalent and senior management at universities. And when I asked them about two-year degrees, they were far less interested in that, but degree apprenticeships they were taking very seriously. So that's kind of how it seemed to weigh up. Uh, we have another question in here, and then one at the back after that. I just wanted to ask the panel what you think about Education 4.4 uh, around automation and robotics. So if you think uh, <laughs> automation and robotics is going to consume all of the jobs, what does education look like? If AI and robotics are going to consume half the jobs, what does that look like? And uh, what does education look like if, uh, if, if you think they're not going to take any of the jobs? So I guess some different future scenarios. We need Martin yeah. over there. He's busy having a chat over there. I think, I think for me, I very much like Dave Coupling's point of view yesterday, that this is about man plus machine. And I think it's about automating those repetitive, mundane tasks and freeing up people, particularly teachers, lecturers and people like that, for the important one-to-one -one activity where it's about student support and making the difference. So freeing people from the tasks that uh, can be easily you know, automated or AI can do and deliver the difference. But I, I don't see it as the machine replacing the person because I, I think it's important both for just ensuring that that continual student development we're people we like to talk to other people and I think that's a crucial part of how we interact but also that's how we can test I think what we think and how it's right by having that that kind of interaction on a face-to-face -face basis it might be face-to-face -face virtually rather than face-to-face -face sitting in a chair opposite each other but I think that interaction with people is not going to go away I think, I think there's that really interesting and quite a horrible case study recently where, you know, the poor man was told that he had a few days to live through a, a, robot. Yeah. Through a <laughs> robot. So, I mean, they were sort of face-to-face -face virtually, but I think it's starting to throw up scenarios where that's just not, like, the etiquette. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we'll still have some manners. And, I think ethics yeah. has, a, you know, has yeah. a big part to play in, in this field. Just because you can do something mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you should. I think, you know, we have to have that ethical discussion first and make sure that, 
we feel comfortable with what we're doing and how much we're automating and that everybody feels comfortable with that you know so have that open and transparent discussion and so we had the the lady from the university of bristol yesterday speaking about teaching i think it was computer science or data analytics but having a philosophical or ethical module as well and i think we'll start to see more of that you know there's the ai standards body as well and they're trying to for this i idea of developer that would come up with some of your apps and platforms and services but again they have that idea of pedagogy so they also do the educational understanding so that when they're developing it's not from one perspective or the other it's both any other questions we've got a couple don't know where the microphone's gone oh sorry we've got one over here as well can we can we take this one first and then we'll come come over here hi i just wanted to know your thoughts on how we deal with the skills gap between students coming in unable to kind of access this technology because they've not had the opportunity when they were younger so that they can actually access education 4.0 it's a great question whenever you do something like this there are going to be some people who who just straight up cannot afford a laptop or who have not been sort of brought up with it or something like that the way I look at this is technology always starts off as very expensive. Then if it's popular, it rapidly comes down in price. So you look at sort of like smartphones and laptops and internet access and 4G and all of this other great stuff that we, we just all have now. Basically, everyone has them and has access to them. I, I say basically, I appreciate there's a small percentage who, who can't. And it's difficult to say exactly what we do about that other than to say you've still got teachers and, and doctors and all these other people there. And now because more people, the other 95% of people are doing more self-service sort of stuff, it lets them focus their time more on those people and frees up resources to do that. We see, and I touched on this before, a big part of bringing in new software to a university is actually the training of the students and the staff. And it's necessary that the university and perhaps the school system takes that on. Many universities give out laptops to students that don't have them or let them borrow them and have proper training courses for all of the major software that the university buys in. I think that's really the only way to solve it, and it has to be done through the institution, from my perspective anyway. We're also seeing governments sort of have a continual learning budget, and I wonder whether that will become part of this as well. So the idea that, you know, we, we are allocated a certain amount of, of money, but of course it's not just about money, is it? It's about having the access and the support and, and so on. So we've got another Definitely. question here. Hello. I've got a bit of an estates background, so I'm very interested in knowing what role the university campus has in the future of Education 4.0. Do we still need the physical spaces and campuses that we have? I think we will always need a physical space, but I think it will continually change and adapt. I think that's where we need to move to, to a campus that will adapt to its use so that you're not just allocated a room when you start a course and that becomes your room as you deliver that course all the way through, but you get a room that's appropriate for what you're actually delivering in that session and that where it's appropriate to deliver online, you, you know, you deliver online or a blended session. It's not necessarily that all courses are taught in that campus so I see that a lot of campuses may shrink or may change and I think that's started to happen with a lot of new builds already you know but I don't see it disappearing I think people will always want to come in and have those conversations and to, to, to have that activity I was having this conversation with someone last night and it was like where are the spaces that I feel really inspired it's still one of those spaces you go and you feel really inspired and it's an exciting place and it makes such a difference to the location where these universities are based. So I was thinking universities, libraries, because I, I feel that they are a kind of a place of reflection and, and then cafes and pubs because you have that connection and you, have, you sit down and you have a really good conversation 
And you have a different kind of conversation than, for example, if you're in a boardroom or on a stage like this, like you have that kind of one-to-one -one candid conversation. So. And I think that's one of the ways how the campuses will change probably in the more near future is that you'll be able to check out whether the library is particularly noisy or whether the rest of your cohort's in there or whether hmm. there's, you know, whether they're, they're still serving the vegetarian specials in, the, in the, <laughs> the cafe you're going to and things like that so that you can go and study in the environment you want to study in, you know. Yeah. Some of us like to study where it's really warm some of us prefer to be somewhere cold, and you can just start to have those preferences and know about them before you set off. I remember uh, interviewing the, the librarian, chief librarian from Loughborough University, and they said that initially they used to say, like, no food in the library, and then he realised this was a terrible idea, and they allowed pizza delivery to come straight into the library, and people started using the library yeah. and chatting yeah. and studying, yeah. and, you know, then they would just take the boxes away, and it yeah. was like, oh... We should just do what the students want. Yeah. So, yeah, Co I, I, coffee and food. Coffee and food. I think that's a really important point. If if you think about why students go to university, number one, employability. Number two, social um, stuff. And for a lot of students, probably num number one, social stuff. And I think that's a massive competitive advantage that universities have. And I can't see students forsaking that for an online course. But what they would, in in general, in the future, do more of, I think, is both. So instead of having a lecturer talk to you for an hour, you can have that done online, but interacting with your tutor or having a beer with a friend, you need the campus or you need physical places. I think it's what we're already doing at work. You know, yes. I mean, yeah. we work flexibly, so we choose when it's appropriate to go in the office, when we want to have those interactions with our colleagues, yeah. but then we choose to work at home when we want to do yes. that kind of yeah, activity. Right, so we're already there. If the space wasn't that important because technology had sort of like gotten rid of the need for it, then all of the big tech companies will be working remotely. But they invest, Facebook, Google and stuff, invest huge amounts into their space. It's a big selling point because they want to attract the best people. They want them to come early, stay late, do their gym and socialise and stuff there. And when you want uh, to collaborate, you know, yeah, that's when I go into the office is when I want to collaborate with my yeah, colleagues because yeah. I can't do that from my home office. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the comment earlier about vinyl reminded me of something I think I read or heard about the comparison between vinyl and mp3s and it's a comparison between quality over convenience and utility mm -hmm. which is interesting if you think about how that may or may not apply to online versus face-to-face -face. and if we are sacrificing quality over utility what is the quality that we're sacrificing for that utility I would never advocate sacrificing quality. You know, for us, it's all about maintaining and even improving the quality of education, but supporting it with technology. In our case, uh, we can't beat a print book. And so what we try to do is do things a print book can't do. So search, like you can't search 100,000 books in one second, things like that. But at the end of the day, and I think the vinyl is a good example, you can't be a better vinyl than a vinyl record. So, yeah, I mean, the, the consumer at the end of the day has to decide when they use which form of media and as you're saying um, convenience is a major deciding factor. I think it's also about like single tasking versus multitasking and so it seems to have been like a bit of a swing away from the idea of multitasking so like, recently I think partially when people are browsing you say they're sort of like going and searching specific things it's because it's so easy to have two desktops and multiple tabs open and just oh that link and I'll go oh and over there and stuff like that but then when I'm on a plane and I don't have internet access, I really quite like it because I've got one book and even if I think, oh, I've got to stick to that. And I think that's partially the vinyl thing because 
you buy it and you stick it on and it's such an effort to change the needle that you often end up listening to the whole album where if you're on Spotify you just jump between so I think it, it obviously is partially about the quality of content and stuff like that but it's also just encouraging people to engage with it in a deep way and like so one thing I really like about podcasts and the reason I think they're so popular at the moment is they're the only type of like long form content on the internet that people really listen to because you can do it whilst you're, you're driving or ironing mm-hmm. or whatever else yeah. it is so you end up having these big sort of like two or three hour conversations whereas the rest of the internet is 140 characters mm-hmm. thank you for a big podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got one question here and then we'll take the one at the back as well afterwards yeah with the uh, the advent of ubiquitous information and the modern technology age some people argue we've lost critical thinking skills and i was wondering um for example with gps we've lost the ability to read maps a lot of people i was wondering with education 4.0 what skills might we lose I think you will lose some skills. I, th- I think you're right. So map reading is, is an example because whether or not you actually literally need to read a map anymore, it's a helpful skill to have and it's sort of like a good process to go through in terms of sort of like just knowing bits about the world and stuff like that. I think we will lose some stuff. And I think we'll gain some stuff as well. I'm aware that's a complete non-answer, but no one else is saying anything. So, I, I think your statement earlier, James, that people now know how to find things, but they don't know them. Mm. I think the depth of knowledge is decreasing a lot and... One of our chemistry lecturers a long time ago showed an example of that if you memorise the periodic table, and students today just don't, they don't know the periodic table, there were certain discoveries that were a direct result of knowing the periodic table, sure. every single element on it. And I think perhaps we're at risk of losing certain discoveries or critical, I suppose, conclusions because of a lack of a deep knowledge. Or, or I guess becoming reliant on the technology. So yeah. not knowing how to work a map works great until you run out of Wi-Fi or the servers go down or something like that. And so it's probably just a risk of the knowledge becoming too dependent on a particular piece of technology or something yeah. like that. And that's often when you do rediscover those skills. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, when they're kicking, when you're, when you're halfway up a mountain in Wales and, and nothing's working, is when you start to realise that yeah. these skills have meaning and then you, you make the concerted effort to, to regain them. Yeah. yeah and exactly. I, I think, you know, there is going to be an element of that we churn these, I think, you know, we think something doesn't yeah. work and we don't need it and, and get rid of it and then we realise yeah, actually, this is really important and we need to learn yeah. it. So I, I think, you know, there is... I, so I like said, that when I go camping or something, for example, because yeah, yeah. you're suddenly actually sort of exposed to the elements and you've got to plan when you eat and where you get your water from and stuff like that and it's like, oh, not everything is on demand. I think that we lose some things and we gain some mm-hmm. things and yes. I, I think that's, that is the, the answer. Sure. Yeah. I, I worry that we'll lose our ability to explore so, and, and mm. chance the romance of like chance things happening. Yeah. So, for example, with uh, using Google Maps, if you use Google Maps, you, you, that you'll be put on a road and it will largely be like a, a main road. And those tend to be quite boring. But if you take a turning and you go down a lane and, you know, you probably have to reverse and that'd be highly irritating. But like, you'll have a different experience and through these kind of chance encounters. So I, I think the idea of like, making our own decisions i think we should just be conscious about that and yeah. Yeah, sorry i was laughing mm-hmm. because i used google maps recently in cardiff for a 25 minute walk and it took me two and a half hours and i walked four miles because it doesn't always work no and that's the thing it doesn't always know <laughs> any other questions we've got one just here i think at the conference there's been a lot of discussion about building students that have skills that are defined as employable skills the business one I was just wondering whether there should be more pushback from education on skills that are important but not necessarily add value either to the student or to the business. So in terms of things like data ethics, which uh, Miranda Mowbray was talking about yesterday with a really interesting workshop, and whether in the environment of switching to micromasters and modular education, whether we should still push compulsory modules 
that students don't necessarily think they might need but will be important? Yeah, so this idea that is education, the discussion around education becoming too transactional and too tied to industry? Well, I think there's a, a lot of assumption that jobs go from driving vehicles to writing code, but actually the jobs like writing code that are the most predictable it will be automated at some point, and it's the human interactions and human interactions tied to philosophy, to ethics, things like that, that I think would be very difficult to automate. So, yes, we absolutely need to do them. Should they be compulsory? I don't know, but I, I think it would be good if most people did some general sort of philosophy, yeah. general science, general English. Definitely, yeah. I would agree. I think that's where the jobs of the future are going to be because, as Dave said, coding, yes, that can be automated. Mm -hmm. Writing and making the decision about what is ethically right cannot be automated. That, is, that needs people. People need to retain those skills and use them. Well, I read recently about this idea that if you're buying your Tesla car and it has to make a decision about whether it runs over one person or hits mm. two people, and then you would choose your AI based on, I can't remember what they termed it, but it was like altruistic AI, which means that you die and the other people don't, or like this other version of AI which protects you. And people said that they liked the altruistic AI, but when it came down to it and they had to sign something, they were like, yeah. no way, like, I'm, I'm having this other one. So, but you get like different flavours of, of, of this as well. So, um, yeah. I think there is a benefit to a well-rounded sort of education. I think yeah. one of the roles of universities is to have an opinion on what some of the compulsory yeah. topics should be and stuff like that. Now, if I'm looking to employ someone who's done a computer science course and I just want them to write code, they'll be on more than minimum wage, but minimum wage in the UK, just cost of living means that it's always going to be more expensive than just outsourcing that to China or something like that, or Ukraine or wherever else it is. So I think what universities should be trying to do is stick into the coding example, not just produce people who can just write a thousand lines an hour or whatever it is. You're trying to build up future leaders and managers, people who can run a team, speak to a client and all of these sort of things. And I think the best way to do that is probably to have a rounded education and then to start pointing it somewhere. As to making specific things sort of like compulsory around data ethics, I, I would stick to like the, the broader topics, saying about philosophy or all the things like that, rather than going into particular topics of the day, because students can always find them and, uh, yeah. I do want to add a caveat. I do think most degrees are too far removed from the job market. Now, you don't have to fix that by making the degrees entirely technical or, or job-focused. I think things like placements that you tie two degrees are a better way to go about it. So you get good fundamental philosophy, but then you spend six to 12 yeah. months yeah, it's in learning a job placement. And like keep going on that loop, right? Yeah. So with Education 4.0 then, say in, I don't know, next 10 to 20 years, will it continue to be further education colleges, higher education institutions that realise this, or will it be completely left-field player that comes in and suddenly becomes the new university? I think both. I think universities have such strong brands that couldn't see Oxford, for example, that brand, even if they're the last to jump on the on online bandwagon, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure they'll still be fine. And I think that the universities moving online now, Coventry, for example, are clearly taking a lot of the market. So there'll be those players, and then you'll have some newer entrants. And I think it comes back to whether the individual is willing to take a bet on a random, untested brand, some mm -hmm. online company. And I, my guess is, no, they prefer to go with the tried-and-true university. So the universities will eventually be the ones doing this. But there may be less universities. They might consolidate yeah. a bit. I think it's going to be a mixture of both. And I think, you know, the whole nature of it's going to change. And I think it already has started to change. I think we're starting to see m many more college-university partnerships. Mm -hmm university college partnerships and, and that kind of flow of people between the two and I think 
With new entrants, we'll enter the market and we'll add to that, but I think we will always have that mix. So I think we'll keep the ones we have, we'll add some new ones in. There'll be some changes, but I think, you know, fundamentally, we'll, we'll, we'll keep that mix. Okay. Yeah. I think there will be some form of contraction in the, in the further education space, higher education, but there has been a massive expansion in the last decade as well. So in a way, it'll be a bit of a return back to normal because certain degrees people I think there will always be a benefit going to university I think some are increasingly just it, it's not going to make as much sense to go to a traditional sort of university versus some sort of hybrid model or a completely new competitor so I think there will be changes and they'll find a new sort of happy medium okay so final question we've got five minutes left what are the people books podcasts any other type of media or person that have influenced you in the way that you think that you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap up today the one thing that comes to mind is Thomas Piketty's book on capital. I don't know. Has anyone read it or knows of it? Got a nodding head there. <laughs> I think the gap between the super wealthy and everybody else and the middle class and, and the working class has increased a lot over time. And unfortunately, I think automation will just increase it more. So I think that's the biggest challenge for the next 20 to 50 years. And the baby boomers have had it very lucky and they were the one generation that had that trend go in reverse so social mm -hmm. mobility increase so I think that's the biggest challenge and that sort of affects I just think about a lot I guess yeah social mobility definitely I would agree I think that's going to be a huge challenge but I think also you know with the increase in automation we our culture is that we we get self-worth from what we do and the fact that we work you know and that that's going to have a huge impact as that starts to create big changes and I think it's something that that we you know the big we we all you know we need to start thinking about as one of the big problems that we mm -hmm. need to talk about and start looking at solutions. We don't have one yet, but we should be thinking about it more than we do. I can't think of any books and stuff off the top of my head other than uh, like Make It Stick. I read, which a few people here have probably read, really interesting book into like some of the like psychology behind how people learn. And I think just generally, having gone from like eight years at university and like doing that sort of like traditional education, then going into like a startup and now being at a point where we're like employing and stuff like that, it's uh, and you'll probably get this as well. I feel like I have an understanding of where there's a conflict and where there's a bridge to be had between industry and academia. I feel like I sort of understand both sides of it now. And I think it's a worthwhile experience if you have the opportunity to engage in a startup on an innovation project or to do like a hackathon or, or this kind of thing. There's just a lot of value to be had in like seeing the way that the different sides of the coin sort of think. Because I think we want the same thing, which is well-trained, educated, smart, critical thinking students and or employees, and sometimes just have different ideas over what the priorities should be. That woman referenced was Dr Miranda Mowbray, a lecturer in computer science at the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Bristol, with a specialism in big data ethics. I caught up with her one-to-one -to, -one to find out a bit more about how the way we teach can help break down the silos in education and among the technologies we embrace. For our listeners, it would be wonderful if you could introduce what you do at the University of Bristol and especially around sort of the, the subject of big data ethics. Okay, I'm Miranda Mowbray. I'm a lecturer at the University of Bristol. I lecture on algorithms and a completely new course on computer science and society, where I'm a guest lecturer and do ethical and legal issues. And this new course is for second-year undergraduates, and it's about the influence of computer science in, on society and vice versa. When we train computer scientists, we spend three years 
teaching them and with them learning through lots of hard work how to build systems that don't crash very often. And you do need a lot of hard work to learn how to do that. It's, it's really tough. A standard computer science degree doesn't really have anything about what you should use these systems that don't crash for. And computer science and society has a whole set of questions where there are social, legal and ethical issues to do with computer science. So, for example, war and peace, the future of work, how we socialize, behavioral nudges, all these questions. Now, IT systems are absolutely central to how they work. And computer scientists, instead of working in the basement and tending to machines and not actually meeting people, they're now in the boardroom having to make decisions on our future as a society. So that's undergraduates. I'm also involved in newly funded PhD in interactive artificial intelligence which is going to have a cross-cutting theme of responsible artificial intelligence, where this comes up, particularly with application in AI. And, I mean, I bumped into some attendees at DigiFest at the end of the first day, and they were really buzzing about your session, so I was, like, doubly annoyed that I didn't get to come and look at it. Um, it was a fantastic session. It was very, very interactive. The, the wonderfulness of the session came from the people who are there. So this series of podcast episodes that I'm recording is all around education 4.0 and digging into what that might mean. Where are the points of concern for you when we're thinking about where education and, for example, artificial intelligence or more sophisticated technologies are coming along in terms of making sure that our learners' needs are best met? Well, like I said, our learners' needs, we're teaching computer scientists who are going to have to go and answer these really sensitive and complex societal issues, and their decisions on the technology will frame the future that we have. And as someone that I spoke to who who had come to your workshop session was talking about examples of companies like Uber or where some of these ethical issues are coming in. Yeah, that's right. I had a longer discussion about something which happened with Uber. Uh, I put up a scenario of a a choice that Uber had made that most of the people in the room thought was unethical. And we had a long discussion about why and the different ways in which you could decide whether you liked what was going on or not. So was it in line with values, corporate values, your own personal values, professional values, where the outcomes, good or bad, on balance, considering different stakeholders? Was it breaking the letter or the spirit of rules? And if so, which kind of rules? So those are the three main ways in which you do normative ethics, those of you who know technology. Some people think one way they tend to be rules-based, they think about whether it's legal or not. But there are other ways of thinking that it's really helpful to have as well as a way of discussing an issue and seeing whether there are problems. And also... I think it's really important when you're teaching this or when you're learning together with undergraduates or postgraduates is to have a discussion of what you can do. If you find you're in a position where you're employed in a company that's doing something that you think is wrong, what can you do in practice? So, you know, a point of differentiation for whether it's universities or others, you know, you've got tons of coding boot camps out there, but how many of them are teaching this integrated approach to ethics and whether it's philosophy or other intersecting disciplines as well? Yeah, I try and keep the philosophy very light uh, because I'm much more practically oriented, although although it's fascinating. I think it's more important to provide tools that are useful in practice 
for people who will be in the position of making difficult decisions. So I started up with giving the example of Christopher Wiley. I don't you know Christopher Wiley? He was research director at Cambridge Analytica. Okay. And so Cambridge Analytica, in case anyone hasn't been following the news, was taking a lot of data from Facebook from a huge number of people without their knowledge or permission, personal data, and doing psychological profiling of them. And their business model was to do political advertising that not only tried to persuade people to vote for the politician who was paying them, but also tried to find people who might vote for, for their opponents and confuse them, disorient them, dishearten them so that they wouldn't vote at all. So it's inherently anti-democratic business model. And Christopher Wiley, when he was interviewed about it, said, yes, this was unethical. Yes, I'm very sad that I was involved in it. But at the time, there was a billionaire breathing down my neck and I was, we were just focused on getting the data and doing the experiment. When this happened, he was 24. Wow. He was 24. He was not many years out of his further education. And when I saw this interview, I, I thought of the students. I thought of my students, and I thought they might be ending up, some of them may well be ending up in a position where they're taking, that having to take that kind of position, having to face that kind of question about what they should do. So we talk about how not to get into that position in the first place, but also what you can do if you are in that position. And one way of not being in that position in the first place is, as a routine, think about the, the consequences of the things that you're working on. Think about how to make what you're working on more in line with your own values and with maybe with corporate values as well. And think about how you can improve your code from that point of view, just as you, by routine, think about how to make your code less buggy. <laughs> that's absolutely brilliant I'm nodding my head the, the whole time so uh, oh, great. <laughs> yeah and if people want to kind of find out a little bit more about your work what's the best way for them to do that are you a, a Twitter fan or, or not so much I have a hashtag on Twitter but I'm on LinkedIn I don't okay. have a Twitter account okay perfect so LinkedIn and it's Miranda Mowbray so thank you so much for your time today and I would say I love talking about this sort of thing. If anyone's interested, contact me. Also, if you can code and you can do statistics and you would like to do a PhD in interactive artificial intelligence, come and talk with me. We've got this new CDT just setting up and we're recruiting right now. One thing I am definitely a fan of, so my talk was about not only what is the content in this course, but also the way to teach it, which is very much to let students make up their own minds mm. and to present it through dilemmas and discussions. And that was what made the particular session so good. It was the quality of the discussion. And that's what made the lectures that I've done so far so good. Again, the quality of the discussion. I've been told before that before I did this, that computer scientists really couldn't cope with sort of questions that didn't have an obviously correct answer or for very interactive forms of teaching. Actually, they loved it. They really flew with it. Thank you very much. All right. Have a lovely evening. Personalisation, continuous assessment, unbundled degrees and immersive learning all have exciting potential. Yet it is clear that we are still adjusting to our relationship with technology and the etiquette and self-care that comes with it. But whilst this is the case, it is without question that the new industrial age brings with it the ability to compute greater and greater sets of data across our education institutions, with incredible potential in tackling some of society's great ills, including within healthcare such as terminal illness. 
How are CIOs working across their teams to protect this data and the amazing research work at hand? I spoke to Alan Hill, CIO from Exeter University, to find out how wargame strategising might help provide contingency and cover for our country's researchers and learners in the fourth industrial age. So I'm delighted to have Alan Hill, the CIO from Exeter University. So welcome, Alan. Thanks. Alan, perhaps for our listeners, so we've got people listening in all around the world, could you give us a little idea on Exeter University, types of students, scale, and the kind of day-to-day in your role as well? Sure. Well, it's a research-intensive university. It's about 22,000 students, about 4,500 staff, spread around the southwest of the United Kingdom, mainly in Exeter, but also a couple of hours away down into Cornwall. And it's a very vibrant university, I mean, it's 22,000 students all doing fantastic things and a research community which does what I call purely amazing research. Every time I look at it, it's exciting and it's just phenomenal. And that goes on day to day. My role in this is the Chief Information Digital Officer is yeah, making sure the IT works, right? That's pretty important, pretty basic stuff. But also now supporting a major investment the universities make in digital technology to support education, to make uh, direct support to research, but also the business activity side of it. So how do you run a university using digital services to make it more efficient and get better outcomes? That's it in a nutshell, really. And so that's quite interesting. So, so the business side of it, so the operational running of the university, where are you seeing potential opportunities to kind of optimise that as well? So a lot around process automation. So how do we make things more efficient and save staff time and effort, but also lots more around data now and how we're using data to drive some of our decision-making processes. So we've got a data warehouse and we're sort of progressing that, getting more sophisticated about it and using data to directly support the business decisions we're making. This series is about Education 4.0. So do you have a particular take on what that might mean? And when you think about sort of opportunities and challenges for whether it's artificial intelligence or biotechnology and what that means for us as kind of learners and teachers, where do the complications come? And yeah, what what does Education 4.0 mean to you? Well, I think one of the most amazing things about this sector is the vast variety of different technologies that you can use for education. The real challenge is picking the winners. Mm. Now, when you've got 22,000 students and you know two, about a couple of thousand academic staff, you can't pick just one for everybody. And it's somehow creating the flexibility to find that learning methodology, which is supported by some digital technique uh, that works for the range of students. So creating a deeply personalised experience for a student, for example, such that they might learn a bit like me. I like learning in pictures. I'm not brilliant with, you know, with, with, with text. So can we find technology which is going to help me learn as a student with that personalised experience? Now, that is slightly different to finding sort of, you know, the, the interface, which is changing on a daily basis. But let's bring that right back fundamentally. What can we do to create a deeply personalised learning experience? What technologies can we use? For me, that's probably, that's our strategic question. That's what we're trying to address. 
And if I understand correctly, your past life or in a past life is in the military or in the army. So you probably get asked this all the time, but what can you kind of take from that experience? And and what could the higher education sector learn if they look sideways to a different experience? Uh, It's quite interesting. The move from the army, and I was in the army for a long time, about 30 odd years, uh, doing lots of different roles, most of them in the communications area. So IT is fundamentally the same no matter what sector you're in. It's the bit around the edges, which is different. But here's the parallel between the army and higher education. It's full of youngsters who are really demanding and need it to work. Okay, Some are wearing uniform in the army and some aren't. Okay, But they need it to work. It's got a whole bunch of specialists in there who really need the high-end technologies to do their work. So we've got you know special forces or unmanned air vehicles in the military, in the army in particular. But in the university, we've got these researchers doing fantastic stuff. And they all need it to work first time. Now, those parallels are true. It might be a little bit stretched just for the sake of the point. But actually, what we're bringing now from my background into higher education is that understanding of operational urgency about something and how to deliver and make sure it works and the fallback plans if it doesn't work. Because it's always going to fail in the military. Something will happen. You've got to have a reversionary mode. You don't know how to drop back. You've got to practice it. We do the same in the higher education sector. That's really important. Now, that's just running day-to-day stuff. When we're looking for new things, both of those environments, the army and higher education, can be on the cutting edge. But there's no point being cutting edge and then trying to sell it to the mass markets because it won't work. So picking the winner... Picking something that can be introduced and adopted carefully and made to be embedded is what we're doing. That's exactly the same for the military environment as it is for the higher education. The difference is one's doing one particular kind of action and the other's doing learning and education and one wears a uniform and the other doesn't. You know, in this world where data is so important, I would imagine as well, you know, that there's another parallel of trying to protect that data from outside forces, as it were. So how much of that is a concern of yours in your role now and, and your equivalent peers in other universities, do you think? It's a really hot topic. My last role in the military was head of Global Operations and Security Control Centre for the Ministry of Defence. So that's for all these sort of UK military operations worldwide. That's making sure the planes in the air that the ships on the sea or under the sea as well, the submarines mm-hmm. and the soldiers on the ground get the network connectivity and the cyber defence that they need. Flip that across to higher education, okay, and actually the problem's the same. Mm-hmm. Now, the people attacking it might be doing it for different reasons. We'll have criminality hitting universities a lot. We will have foreign states looking to steal research. And if you look at the NCSC website, the National Cyber Security Centre website, it will tell you that universities are targets. Mm. So our commercial research and our intellectual property rights and our patents are things worth protecting. And we have to move a bit of a step change, I think, in higher education to understand that that is being stolen and it is money which has gone out of our doors and we need to take action now to protect it on behalf of UK PLC, not least the sector or the actual individual university. Now, we've been very active in that area. We're really doing a a catch-up in some areas and leaping ahead in others, but using the latest techniques and the latest suppliers to help protect our research 
and our commercial research in particular, that in turn will help us win more research. Okay? Now that doesn't mean, and don't let anybody think, that means we think all sat here going, that's fine, we're all protected. Because we know in the cyberland, it's not if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. Sort of cat and mouse type thing. And the flip side is practising when it happens and rehearsing it, which is another military trait. You know, wargaming it, understanding the combinations that can go on, getting a plan and practice, practice, practice. Perfect. Well, final question. Who inspires you in this space? So are there any particular sort of books, people that you follow, not in person, obviously, like on Twitter or so on, people that inspire you that, you know, and it could be in sort of army world, it could be in higher ed or just generally reading that you've kind of taken with you and that you like to return to? I won't answer that directly. I'll answer it like this. I met an academic in our medical school and he had a poster campaign going on. He was, uh, and I didn't understand a word it said on it. I, I, mean, I genuinely didn't understand it. I said, what is this? And it was looking for cancer markers in DNA. Right, yeah. And he explained to me what it was. And I thought that was absolutely stunning that this professor, he had done that. He and his team had found this. And I was really deeply inspired by these individuals. So not by technologists as such, but actually these academics are doing amazing science. I was delighted to see in this recent New Year's Honours list that he was appointed OBE. Now, that just reflects the stunning work that these people do. And I am very proud to support them doing it and do what I can to help enable them to do amazing science. That's what inspires me. Wonderful. Well, Alan, thank you so much. And uh, we'll share this out very soon. Thank you. That's all for this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. In our next episodes, we dig a little deeper into some of the characteristics of Education 4.0, including AI and the university campus, the interplay between education and industry, and the need to keep questioning whilst retaining a hopeful outlook, including guests across learning technology, student mental health care, AI and education, and the sticky campus. Thank you very much to all of you who have messaged in and enjoyed listening to the series so far. Richard Evans from The Profs wrote in to say, I'm just listening to Sophie's panel discussion at JISC and greatly enjoying it. We recently won a DFE grant to gamify open data to help students make better life decisions with The Way Up or at The Way Up Game on Twitter. So good luck with that, Richard, and do stay in touch. A big shout out also to Kieran Jagdev, an e-learning developer who said, I absolutely love this session and will definitely be checking out the podcast about our live podcast recording at Digifest. That better be true, Kieran. And if you're not listening in now, I shall be very upset. And thanks also to Head of Digital Literacy, Philippa Rathmel at Mrs. Rathmel, who is listening in warm and sunny Abu Dhabi whilst we all suffer here in the UK with Storm Gareth, who says that she likes listening into the podcast to inspire her writing around certain digital literacy topics. So glad we could help Philippa and keep typing away. That's all for this week. Thanks so much to all my guests and to you for listening. Come and join the conversation with us online at hashtag edu4 underscore zero at JISC and at podcast edtech. We are both on all the social medias, as you would imagine, and we would love to hear from you. If you also want to listen back to each individual full-length and unedited interview, you can do so at www.patreon.com forward slash the EdTech podcast. 
And for more reading, you can also check out all the references within this episode among our show notes at theedtechpodcast.com, along with additional blogs this week from our friends at FutureLearn. Don't forget to come back to our next episode. Here's our trailer to remind you what we have coming up in the series. Bye-bye. Okay, for standby. Switch on standby, please, huh? Coming soon. Education 4.0, a new series on the EdTech podcast co-curated with JISC. This seven-part podcast series will examine the changing world of higher and further education, exploring questions including where, when and how will learning happen when we are always online? How can we use AI to continuously improve the student experience? Who can help embed new technologies and working practices? Will there still be colleges and universities in the future? And how might today's institutions change? As the candidates for a degree kneel before the Vice-Chancellor, they will hear the same 600-year-old Latin formula. Being that millennials find empowerment in discovering things on their own. It's natural for them to diversify their channels and seek out informal types of education instead of simply picking out a major. We tend to still think of work as a place you go rather than a thing that you do. A lot of that thinking kind of spills over, I think, into education as well. Let's say you've started a a three-year degree in October. So much will have changed by the time you, you come out the other end. But they see many parts of their lives that have really good digital experiences and they think that could add value to my education and they want to see that as part of their education. The Education 4.0 series is co-curated by Sophie Bailey, founder and host of the EdTech podcast, Martin Hamilton, resident futurist at JISC, and Sue Atwell, head of change for further education and skills and the EdTech launchpad at JISC. External contributions come from across education institutions, industry and research. To listen to the series, subscribe now on iTunes and Android players to the EdTech podcast or check out our feeds on Twitter at JISC and at Podcast EdTech. Follow the conversation using hashtag edu4 underscore zero. Teaching well has to translate into tangible benefits for our learners. And those benefits, being an agent of change, being an employable citizen, being an ethical contributor to society, those are the the central principles of what we mean by being change makers in terms of staff as well as as, as students. What's become very interesting and certainly in terms of staff well-being and staff mental health is this this need to belong, need for a place. And we're also trying to create a kind of online and offline community for our apprenticeships. We recognise that the other thing that the university experience offers is that ability to build networks and contacts and a community that you might use later in life. But we think that we can use tech to replicate, if not improve on that experience. These might be places to go and study in order to work out what really matters, who we are, where our societies should be headed and how we can be happier and more fulfilled. I want to say 
to you that there are glorious benefits from AI, which will bring such advantages in depth of learning and experience. I mean, the idea is as you're transitioning from traditional learning to digital learning or digitally enabled learning, like what are the conditions that would enable success? 